Everyone find a seat. We're going to get started at 7.15. It is time. Our speaker is on East Coast time, so she's giving a lecture at like 10.15 at night. Which I can guarantee if she gave here, none of you would be here. So think of her. Let's get, we'll get to that. So uh, welcome to the second part of our three-part 18th Annual CSP Summer Scholar Institute. Very happy to have with us today uh, Professor Deborah Dashmore. I'll say a few more words about her shortly. Um, for those of you new to CSP, it stands for Community Scholar Program. And this is the beginning of our 19th year of programs in Orange County, which means I was much younger <laughs> when the whole series started many years ago. And so were, so were all of you. Just one minute. Don't laugh at me. Um, I wanted to thank all of you who have donated as patrons and supporters of different levels for CSP over the years. Uh, we do receive, and we're very thankful for contributions each year from the Feder Jewish Federation and Family Services and the Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County, but the bulk of our money comes from individual donors, so I hope you will sign up and become members this year when you get the materials in the next few days and support us as we head to year number 20. We also have a very active legacy circle with over, uh, over 100 people, and uh, we hope you'll consider becoming a member of our legacy circle and um, ensuring that CSP continues for many years in the future. Programs coming up tomorrow is the third of our, in our three-part series. Uh, the topic will be Jewish identity politics. We'll be here in the same room starting at noon. Do you have a question? Well, Good to go. Yeah, but if you're here at noon, you get to see the, get the table. We'll start exactly at 12.15. We have a program June 19th, Documenting History Through Art, Jewish Life in Eastern Europe, with Lior Raskin. Information about that will be upcoming. As well as a summer three-part mini-series with Shirel Horowitz, August 30th through the 31st, on Israeli art. One topic will be Israeli art as a window to Israeli history and collective memory. What is Israeli culture, a roller coaster ride through Israeli contemporary culture? And the last program, Adam Viadama, Human and Land, Exploring the Relationship Between the People and the Land of Israel is Reflected Through Art. Uh, some of us in the room are heading out in four weeks to Poland, Lithuania. We have about 40 people from Orange County, and we'll be there July 7th through the 19th, so we'll report back as to some of our adventures. You can follow us on Facebook, and uh, I am taking, dragging, cajoling, bringing my daughter Clara with me. She is 17. Her job will be to update social media. That's what they do at that age, so hopefully I'll get to pre-approve what she puts up there. If it is random, unusual stuff, it's not me. It's clear. Um, we are going to Israel for uh, the third in a three-part uh, trilogy of trips, October 18th through the 30th, 2020, co-sponsored by Congregation of Israel and Temple Bethel of South Orange County. We opened registration and sold out in 24 hours, so we have 54 people on the trip. However, um, if our waitlist grows to 24, we will consider opening a second bus. Our unofficial waitlist is at uh, 12 already, so we're halfway there. If you're interested in a very uh, active and unusual trip to Israel, you can email me, and if you don't have the materials, I'll send you the itinerary. You'll see why. For those of you interested in going to Italy, we're going with uh, Professor Mark Michael Epstein, who is our one-month scholar, and our one summer scholar, and our family retreat scholar. He's like, uh, if you watch Saturday Night Live, he's the guest that keeps coming back. So he uh, is a professor of art history. He'll be leading our trip to uh, Venice, Florence, Padua, and Rome in 2021. We have an interest list already that has 60 people on it. We can only take 30. As I mentioned today at lunch, Mark only wants to stay in palazzos, so we have limited space. It's a rough life, I know. First world problems, but 30 people. CSP cap challenge, wear your CSP hat this summer. Go somewhere fun, send me a picture, and uh, anybody in the room a winner? Yeah, do you get good things? Oh, it's the winner table. You're at the winner table right there. You get good stuff. Um, I hear music, so is someone, is someone playing music or is it a phone? Okay, I'll take care of that. We are recording. We have uh, many of our programs that have been up on iTunes. Grendel over there records. We have over 200 programs, so if this is your first CSP program ever, You've missed 18 years of programs, but we have about 200 programs or so up on iTunes. Okay, uh, take a moment to turn off your cell phones, and I'll do the introduction. Now, as I mentioned today at lunch, I have like pages and pages of bio. I'm gonna read just some of the stuff. You know, the person we have here tonight is really one of the most accomplished 
um, teachers, speakers, presenters on the American Jewish history scene uh, in America today. So Professor Deborah Dash Moore is the Frederick C.L. Hedwell. Heedwell. Okay, I'll get it right by tomorrow. They, they spell it incorrectly because they have a U and an E there. Okay. okay. Heedwell, Professor of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. Any Michigan people here besides Mike? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are you a student? Um, but I went to the Urker every year, it's amazing. Awesome, yes. <laughs> My nephew just uh, just uh, um, decided to go to Michigan, he made that selection, so the family were all very happy, because finally we have a football team that the family can, but they keep losing so, to um, Ohio State, so we hope that this year will be the year. Okay, um, Deborah Dashmore is a child of New York City. She was uh, uh, born to a mom who later became a professor of English, and her dad was a greeting card publisher, and she shared her city upbringing with her younger sister, Dina. Indeed, the city, along with its schools, became her classroom. Um, she shared with us much of <coughs> some of that uh, this morning, and um, we are very privileged that, um, to have that insight. She left New York City to study history at Brandeis University, returned to New York, where she uh, obtained a PhD from Columbia University, and after teaching at Montclair State and Vassar College, she settled in to University of Michigan so she could be there to teach Anna Rose Spitz when Anna Rose was there, correct? Yes. Now that Anna Rose has left, she continues to teach <laughs> and educates many of the fine minds in the Midwest. Um, she, has won, she has published many important books. Each of the programs in this series is based on one of her books and has received many honors. She's held a Fulbright Fellowship for Senior Scholars at Hebrew University, a Skirball Visiting Fellowship at the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies, a Center for Judaic Studies Fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, and a Pew Fellowship at Yale. She's also received grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Mellon Foundation, and the Littower Foundation. In 2001, she was awarded an honorary doctor of humane letters by the Reconstruction Rabbinical College. Both personally and through her writings, Deborah Dash Moore has played a significant role Establishing on the establishment of American Jewish history as a recognized field in both American and Jewish history. Please join me in welcoming back <laughs> Professor Deborah Dash Moore. Oh, you said I should also mention the topic for today is GI Jews, how, how World War II changed a generation. So, this is a talk. Um, that makes Ari's introduction um, particularly make sense because I became interested in this subject of uh, Jewish soldiers in World War II in part um, because of my father. Uh, my father served in the Navy in the Second World War. And in 1995, which was um, a year celebrating the 50th um, anniversary of the end of World War II, I was particularly struck at that moment with a kind of dissonance. On the one hand, um, as an American, um, I was indeed participating in the victory over Nazi Germany, um, as well as, as Japan, um, and enjoying the, the, the celebration. But as a Jew, World War II meant the Holocaust. And I thought about um, all the losses that Jews sustained uh, during the war, the, the six million who were murdered. And then I thought about my father. And I thought, well, what about him? He's an American, but he's also a Jew. And how do you bring those two aspects of his identity together? Right? Um, because it wasn't just about mourning, and it wasn't just about celebration. Somehow, the two had to relate to each other. So I decided that the best way to find out was to ask him if he would be willing to let me interview him. Um, because when we were growing up, me and my sister, we 
didn't know very much. We knew that everyone had a father who went into the war because when we would go to sleepaway camp, everybody had army blankets. We had navy blankets, of course. We felt <laughs> superior because we had navy blankets. Uh, but everybody had, had you know, the, the, these blankets. And my father never spoke much about the war. Something I came to realize was pretty much true of a lot of men um, who had that experience. But he always told one or two things. And one of the stories he used to tell us uh, that I recalled was a time he was on a destroyer in the Navy. And he told about a time when he was in the Gulf of Mexico and the regular person who was navigating was sick, the enlisted man who was navigating. So my father had to navigate. He was an officer on the, uh, on the ship. And he's navigating and it's, there's no sun, it's, it's very foggy, and he has to get the, the ship to the Panama Canal. They're going to move into the Pacific. So suddenly there's a tanker coming by, and he has the person who does Morse code um, query the tanker, and he says, which way to the Panama Canal? <laughs> and the tanker says, turn around. <laughs> You're going the wrong way. So, you know, it, that kind of story was a funny story, and, and as a kid growing up, I thought, well, it's sort of like, you know, the story is like being on a cruise ship, right? You know, you're in the Gulf of Mexico, you turn around, you go to the Panama Canal. So, I asked him would he be willing to do a really, a serious interview, and he said yes. And so we sat down, and I had at that time a little video recorder. Uh, it was one of the first digital ones, and, and now, of course, it's incompatible with everything. But um, I, I, I set up my recorder, and we started talking. And one of the first things I learned um, about my father was how he enlisted. So after Pearl Harbor in, in December, right, of 41, he decided he wanted to go into the Navy. So he went down, he was a college grad, he graduated from Yale, um, and he goes down to enlist for officer training. And the guy looks at his uh, transcript, and he says, oh, you don't have the math. He didn't have advanced trig, and he did, okay. So my father says, all right, you know, and he goes, and he, meanwhile, he, he takes two intensive math courses, and four months later, he comes back to enlist. And uh, the guy looks at the transcript, he's got the math, and he looks at my father, who grew up in Brooklyn, right, and was a, a Brooklyn boy, and he said, sorry, we're full up. So my father knew they weren't full up. My father knew that this Navy uh, officer was prejudiced against Jews. So he had cousins uh, who lived down in Baltimore. And he called up the cousins and he said, can I go down there um, and use your address to enlist? And they said, sure. So he went down to Baltimore. He goes into the uh, naval office and says, I want to enlist. And he uses the Baltimore address. They say, great, you know, they're happy to have him. They weren't full up at all. And so he signs up. He enlists, and then they say, where do you want to do your training? Great Lakes or New York City? He says, I'll take New York. So he came home, um, and he became an officer. And it, it, there were other accounts. I, I had known, for example, that um, service on a destroyer was considered um, exceptionally dangerous. Father never said that. You had a volunteer to be on a destroyer. Um, and these other things came out. And my father was a member of a group of guys, a social and athletic club they were called in those days, SAC, uh, in Brooklyn called the Dragons. And I thought, you know, this is a great interview. Let me see if I can interview the other Dragons and see what they have to say. You know, and, and They knew who I was because I was my father's daughter, right? So 
I, um, I started doing interviews with the, the dragons, and it turns out that all the dragons went into military service, and they went into different branches of the service. Some went into the Army Air Corps, some went into the Army, some went into the uh, Navy, uh, some the Marines, I mean, you name it, all the different branches of the service that they went into. And I'm doing these interviews, and I'm really excited, and I think, ah, you know, I got this book. Um, and I go to speak to my editor, um, and I tell her, I'm gonna do a book on how a group of Brooklyn boys go into World War II, you know, sort of from Brooklyn to the front. Um, and she looks at me and says, Deborah, no, you can't do that. I said, why not? She said, because it's 19, now it was 1996. It's 1996 and um, no one else is gonna do this and you can't limit yourself. You've gotta go, you know, west of the Hudson River. And of course, you know, she was right. So I, I expanded the, the book, Beyond Brooklyn, um, and started to uh, interview people and collect materials from uh, the rest of the United States. And th that became the basis for GI Jews. I, not only did I do interviews, but I also um, used a lot of, of, rec of uh, letters that guys had written back, especially letters that, that they wrote back to their wives, which were more intimate than letters that were written to uh, parents. Right? The guys were, were pretty opaque when they wrote back to parents, um, but to their wives, they, they expressed more of their feelings at the moment. Um, and I discovered a number of interesting um, accounts, and, and what I want to do sort of briefly is share with you some sense of what the experience of um, uh, Jews was like in military service. And I would say that one of the things I came uh, away after doing this research was the conclusion that the experience of military service um, does end up dramatically changing the, the Jewish guys who go in, and that one of the things that happens is that they become more Jewish in the service, um, even as they're also becoming more American. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a process that, that is a dual process. Um, guys, um, Jewish guys, enlisted because they wanted to fight the Nazis. When they get into the service, they discover that many of the, their fellow GIs enlisted because they wanted to fight the Japanese. Um, that's how they thought of the war. So there was a, a real difference between how Jews understood what World War II was about as compared to what um, many other Americans understood what World War II was about. Um, and these kinds of levels of, of uh, dissonance um, continue as one moves through uh, military service. So one of the first um, group of, of letters that I uh, ended up looking at was actually a letter that was, um, letters that were written to parents um, who were very diligent parents and they saved not only all their son's letters, but they made carbon copies of their letters that they wrote. So I actually had a two-way correspondence, which usually you didn't get, right? You, you didn't get the letters that were sent to the GIs because who could carry letters around with you during the war? So uh, this GI's dutiful son, he, he goes in at the age of, of uh, 19, and he's at Fort Dix. He's also from Brooklyn. Um, and so at Fort Dix, they're, they're being processed. That was the, one of the places they, they processed from the New York area. And he writes home to his parents that, you know, your son woke up at 5.30, right? That was a reveille. And in 15 minutes, he got up, got dressed, he, he made his bed, um, and he was out in formation. Now, he hadn't even gotten his uniform yet. And this is the first day he's writing. But then they march to have breakfast. And facing him for breakfast, was a typical American breakfast. You know, there's uh, orange juice and, and coffee and cereal and, uh, yeah, and ham and eggs. Right. And he'd never eaten ham and eggs. But he wasn't a religious Jew. 
He just never ate out, and he only ate what his mother served, right? And his mother kept a kosher kitchen. And so he doesn't know what to do with the ham and eggs. And he's writing this in a letter, and he says, I thought, well, it's going to be five long hours until lunch. So I ate the ham and eggs sort of the way you would an aspirin, right? Washing it down with the coffee. <laughs> Um, and it was a very powerful letter to me because he wasn't an observant Jew, he was a Zionist, but not an observant Jew, and yet I could visualize this scene of, of these guys sitting around the table eating breakfast, and no one around that table knew that he was having a hard time eating that, those ham and eggs. So the, his Jewishness was being internalized at that moment. Um, it was something that was becoming very private. And indeed, these kinds of experiences happen um, a lot. Uh, he's not the only one. I subsequently heard other kinds of stories. If a Jew was actually religiously observant, he anticipated what was going to happen with the should he eat non-kosher food, right? But for all the guys who weren't, please, you know, it was um, uh, something that just hit him, okay? So that was one thing. Second thing that I came to realize, um, and I talked about New York earlier, right? And that's sort of the experience of, of, of being in a milieu that's very Jewish. Um, and, Therefore, you don't think much about what it means to be Jewish. You also don't think much about how you express your masculinity as a, a young man in that context. So somebody asked me about sports, right? Who asked me about sports? Yeah, sports. So sports was, of course, a really important piece of becoming a man um, in New York. Uh, and one of the guys I talked to who, who did his basic training down in, in Mississippi said that, you know, he loved playing uh, baseball. And he played a tough, competitive game of baseball. He comes down to Mississippi, right, because, and, and they play baseball. And, and he's playing just the way he did in New York. And all the guys are saying to him, hey, hey, why, why are you so competitive? Why, it's, just, it's just a game, you know what? It's, uh, and it's like, well, what do you mean? You know, this is how you do it. This is, this is what baseball is. And he came to realize that his understanding of what it meant to be a man, which was connected with those sports, was very different from these mostly Southerners' understanding of what it meant to be a man. Because for them, what it meant to be a man was to drive a car. And of course, growing up in the Bronx, he never drove a car. So, uh, because, you know, didn't own a car and you had public transit and whatnot. So, I mean, there are all of these experiences that begin to affect how these Jewish guys come to understand themselves. One other example, and, and this is an example of how Jewish men dealt with anti-Semitism. Come in, come in. Will you invite her in, please? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, so, in this case, a guy named Steinfeld, Paul Steinfeld, is um, uh, in Pennsylvania. He's doing, he's already done basic training, he's in the infantry. And he's standing um, shaving. Uh, and the guy next to him turns and says, Steiny because that was his nickname. Everybody had nicknames in, in the military. He says, Steiny, um, he says, um, what are you doing um, in the uh, infantry? I, I thought all of your race was uh, in the quartermaster's corps. So the quartermaster's, you know what the quartermaster's is? So the quartermaster's, right, it, it supplies the troops. And is, of course, behind the scenes, right? unlike the infantry. And Steiny, Steinfeld is furious. He drops his razor, and he's ready to fight. Um, and the guy who said it steps back and said, you know, I never met a Jew before, but I just thought, and he repeats the same thing, that all your race was, you know, in the quartermaster's court. 
And so Steinfeld now is faced with a decision. Do you fight with this anti-Semitic slur, which he recognized was a, an old one, right? That, that Jews avoided facing um, the dangers of military service. Or do you end up trying to educate your fellow soldier? Because after all, when you go overseas, you got to be able to trust the people who are behind you. Right? I mean, that's... You, you, you can't be worried about your back. Right? So he says to the guy, he says, look, what kind of a stupid question is that? You know, here I am, standing right next to you. We're in the infantry, right? And then he says, and furthermore, he says, we're not a race. So Steinfeld tried to educate um, his fellow GI as to what does it mean to be a Jew, right? Um, rather than just to, to fight. Other guys often chose to fight um, when they encountered anti-Semitic uh, attacks. Some ignored it there. So one of the things that was characteristic, however, of the military that made it even more complicated for Jews is that the military accorded to Judaism recognition. Judaism was one of the three fighting faiths of democracy alongside Catholicism and Protestantism. And the military offered Friday night services. It offered leaves for Jews to go to observe uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or uh, Passover. Uh, there were, this was part of official policy. Um, and it was up to the men, Jewish GIs, to decide do they want to take advantage of this and, and actually go to services or, or, or not. And there was, a, again, a variety of responses because sometimes if you said, yes, I would like to have off for Rosh Hashanah, when you came back, you found yourself um, you know, getting KP or um, cleaning latrines. Uh, because it was resented. Other times, not so. Um, and so how many of you, out of curiosity, know about the, the story of the four chaplains? Yes, no, only a couple, okay. So uh, in, in February of um, 43, there's a troop ship that's going up through the North Atlantic. And the troop ship is called the, the Dorchester. And the Dorchester has hundreds and hundreds of uh, men aboard. It also happens to have four chaplains, a um, Catholic chaplain, a liturgical Protestant chaplain, an evangelical Protestant chaplain, and a Jewish chaplain. German submarines torpedo the ship, and it starts to go down off of Greenland. This is very icy water, it's February. Um, and the men are scrambling, right, to, to get into the lifeboats. And the four chaplains, because they're officers, are up uh, on deck and they're helping the men, right? They're handing out life jackets and, and gloves and other things to, to get the men into the, the ships to try to save as many as they can. And then they end up giving the men their life jackets and their gloves. And the four of them link arms and they go down with the ship, along with hundreds of men who didn't make it out. And this image of the four chaplains, and, and you can imagine as these men are going down, the chaplains, that you, you're hearing prayers in English, in Latin, in Hebrew, right, together, uh, be, sort of come to symbolize this concept that the military advanced of what they came to be called the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's an invented tradition. It gets um, what the military would say operationalized in World War II. And it gets operationalized in part through the deaths of the four chaplains. But had the men opened up the sealed containers in the lifeboats, they would have found three versions of scripture. They would have found the Catholic version, the Douay translation. They would have found the King James version for Protestants. And they would have found a version of Hebrew scriptures for Jews, right? wrapped in the same. So there were these ways that the military itself was trying very hard to count Jews as equal to the other religions. 
um, and to make it so that Jews were accepted. And, and one has to keep this in mind because we know in World War II, of course, that African Americans were segregated. They were in segregated um, units, um, usually led by white officers. Uh, this was not the experience of Jews. Uh, most Jews uh, were integrated, and there were always a couple right, in a unit, but never, never that many of them. Excuse me. So one of the things that I wondered about, of course, is what happens once you get overseas? Right? Um, how do things change when Jews actually um, ship off overseas? Uh, is there a diminution of the kind of anti-Semitic encounters that happen in basic training or even that happened, let's say, with Steinfeld with, um, uh, when he was in infantry training? Um, is, there, is there more acceptance once, once you're overseas and you actually have an enemy? And for Jews particularly, what is it like to be overseas in the European theater? Because Jews were aware in the European theater that they were fighting an enemy that targeted them as American soldiers, but also targeted them as Jews. And so the question of dog tags um, becomes a very real question that Jewish GIs have to think about. Um, do they keep their dog tags that have an H on it. So the H stood for Hebrew. That was, uh, it was not a J, it was an H. You could have an H, you could have a P for Protestant, you could have a C for Catholic. Those were your choices, or you could have nothing. Um, one guy I interviewed had four dog tags, um, because <laughs> one, one with each of the, the insignia, because he, he, he wanted to take advantage of the different holidays and stuff. He was a real operator. Um, but most guys didn't have four dog tags. They, they chose. And, and some guys um, very proudly wore an H. Right? Um, they, they really they held on to it. And, and this was especially true for flyers, um, because Jews who were navigators, bombardiers, whatever, you know, knew that they had a, 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 a serious chance of, of being captured, right, of being shot down. And so the question was, do you, do you wear your dog tag, um, which would identify you? And a lot of guys would put it aside, but some guys very specifically held on to it because they said, you know, they wanted the Germans to know that it was a Jew up there who was bombing them, right? Um, and I'm giving you these examples to give you a sense of sort of the diversity of, of responses, but also so that you recognize how Jewishness was very much part of the experience. They're, they're not just American soldiers. They're really aware um, of, of how being Jewish affects them. And on occasion, um, when Jews are captured, uh, they discover um, among their fellow soldiers great solidarity um, in, in that sometimes everybody throws away their dog tags, so there's nothing that identifies them. When, and this is especially around the Battle of the Bulge in, in 1944. Um, other times, I don't know how many, did any of you see the movie? There's a documentary, G.I. Jews. A couple of you, okay. So in that um, documentary, there's a wonderful account of a, of a guy who stands up to an SS officer, right, who will not identify the Jews in the unit and said, you know, we're all Jews. Um, that happens too on occasion. But there have all, also were occasions where Jews were, were indeed singled out or the Nazis, based on last name, made their own decisions as to who was a Jew and, and they were sent to um, uh, camps where they were uh, often worked and, and starved to, uh, to death. Berga is the, probably the most famous one. So in thinking about what the experience was like in um, uh, overseas, I, I want to return to Steinfeld. 
Steinfeld has one of these um, moments that's very powerful that stays in his um, in his consciousness when, when he when I interviewed him, and uh, this occurs outside of Metz. Um, it's very cold. It's um, in in uh, February, and he's um, standing watch with another guy, the two of them, and the, the, the line is pretty close. They can hear Germans talking on the other side. So they're, they're very close. Uh, and his partner's time is up, and his partner hated the cold, and he said, you know, get my replacement out here. I'm, I'm, I want to go back where it's a little warmer. So Steinfeld goes back um, to pull up the, uh, wake up the, the replacement. And this guy, Steinfeld knows is, is one of the anti-Semites in the, in the bunch and, you know, has often, um, you'll excuse the language, called um, uh, Jews kikes, right? which Steinfeld has told him, you don't do that, right? Um, and so he pulls the guy up and the guy curses him out using that language and Steinfeld loses it. And at that point, you know, his helmet goes rattling onto the, the rocks and, and Steinfeld says, you know, you feel that way? Go over and join Hitler's army, right? right? If, that's how, if that's how you feel, right? Um, and he's furious. So that moment indicates, of course, that Steinfeld understands the political ramifications of what the fight was about. Right? That anti-Semitism was integral, not was anti-Semitic, and it was integral to this battle of World War II. But his buddies didn't necessarily understand it. So the other guys around him say, hey, hey, Steiner, you're going to get us all killed, right? I mean, there's all this noise going on. It's late at night. Anyhow, next day, um, lieutenant comes and, and asks, you know, uh, tell me, you, you know, you want to press charges because, in truth, um, Steinfeld didn't do anything wrong, right? He was waking the guy up to serve uh, guard duty and um, it, it, it was indeed something that Steinfeld could have pressed charges on. Right? Um, and Steinfeld says, no, no, um, I'm not going to press charges. I'll, I'll handle it my own way. Around a month later, um, there's a new second lieutenant uh, joins the unit, and um, Steinfeld overhears that uh, the guys are talking, and they say, Berger, Berger, what kind of name's Berger? And one of the guys says, oh, I think he's a lousy kike. And the guy whom Steinfeld, you know, cursed out and, and was angry with, says, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't say that. Steiny doesn't like it. So Steinfeld thought, okay, you know, he'd won not just a bit of respect for himself, but more broadly for other Jews. And that indeed was, I think, exemplary of some of the types of struggles that Jewish GIs had to, uh, had to go through. Now, among the things that I asked um, uh, people when I was interviewing them had to do with what did they know about what was going on in Europe, right? What did they know about the murders at the time? And most of them said, we didn't know much, right? We knew that, you know, the, the Nazis were persecuting the Jews, we knew about the ghettos, we knew about concentration camps, we didn't know about the, the murders. Which is um, feasible if you consider when it was that people went into military service where they were constricted in the kinds of, of knowledge that they had. But one of the guys I, I interviewed went in, he was a pretty observant Jew, active Zionist, he becomes a flyer, goes in in 43, right? which means after the announcement of um, the, the murders that come out in late 42. And I asked him the same thing. Uh, what do you know? And he's, he's flying out of England over Germany. He says, didn't know anything, you know, until the war ended. And then he gives me letters he writes home right, that he has saved. 
his parents say it. Um, and I'm reading the letters, and one of the letters is Rosh Hashanah letter for 44. And in it, he writes to his parents that uh, this one less German town uh, now, because um, although he was a navigator, um, the bombardier let him uh, drop the bombs. And instead of dropping the bomb over the target, which was uh, uh, a, a, a military uh, installation uh, and uh, railroad installation, uh, he dropped it over the town. And he writes, that's just a little payment for the four million who've been killed. So that's what he knew at the time. So it's, it's really interesting. So he did know, right? Not that he knew what was going on, um, but he acted upon that knowledge. And yet something happens afterwards that leads these men to think that they didn't know, which itself is a really interesting question. I don't quite know why. Afterwards, I, I ended up telling him what I discovered in the letter, and, and he was really surprised because he was convinced that he, he, he didn't know, right? There. So when, as the, the war is, of course, drawing to a close in Europe, you get the discovery of the uh, camps. Most of the camps, of course, are liberated by the Soviet troops, right, because they're in Poland, but there are some in, in Germany, in Austria, Czechoslovakia, uh, that get liberated by uh, Allied uh, troops, including American troops. And Ordruf is one of the, the first where there are actually um, survivors there. Um, and Eisenhower, when he comes into this camp, is visibly sick and repulsed and makes a decision that is a very important decision. And he says, I want all these um, reporters, I want as many um, uh, men to come through and see this. He says, because we're told that the American soldier doesn't know what he's fighting for. He says, at least this way, he'll know what he's fighting against. And indeed, this was a very important decision that comes down from the top from Eisenhower because it does mean that many, many more people saw what was going on, including people who were in the Pacific. They were, they were um, uh, men serving in the Pacific who are brought in to see what's going on in Europe so they can understand and explain it um, and, and to the troops. In, um, in the Pacific Theater as well. And um, one of the camps that um, they liberate, um, it's not a death camp, it's just a, just, uh, in quotes, a, a concentration camp, is Dachau, right, which is outside of Munich. And Dachau is a camp that has prisoners of various different um, uh, levels. Uh, and Jewish prisoners are, of course, at the lowest level, but it has a, a variety of political prisoners. And I want to play for you a, um, a short clip from uh, a, another documentary that I was involved in called From Philadelphia to the Front um, that also includes material from um, the, a service that's held at Dachau. I don't think I can really express what I felt in words. Mm -hmm. 
It's a, it's visceral. It's the gut feeling that you have. And I knew they were Jews. I just knew that they were Jewish. So, this is a really interesting service that's held um, in Dachau. Uh, war is ended in Europe, uh, right? VE Day is May, this is a month later. And <coughs> it's held in part because of, or rather I should say, over the objections um, of some of the other prisoners, right? When they heard that Jews wanted to use the p big public square to hold a service, they protested. Mm -hmm. That was too much, right? The <laughs> Jews didn't have, as it were, uh, rights to, to that space. And when one of the officers of the Signal Corps, a, a man from Hollywood who had enlisted, um, heard about this, he was furious. Right? And so he goes um, to uh, higher ups and says, you know, it's really important that um, not only do we have a, a Jewish service in Dachau, but that we film it. Um, so that people can see that America stands for something different from Nazi Germany. We will have a Jewish service. And that's why you saw the, you know, the, the uh, clipboard, right? The, the, the service was being filmed uh, very deliberately as a document to express American values. It's, it's a fascinating document this service because you also hear in a sense the lack of recognition of how much has changed right the chaplain says every man is going to return to his family right it, it hasn't quite sunk in that there are no families to return to the chaplain also says something which I think is really crucial, which is that he comes in a dual capacity, as a member of the American military, but also as a representative of um, the American Jewish community. And indeed, most of the chaplains felt this way, that they were serving in a dual capacity, not just within the military because of the uniform that they wore, but also representing American Jews more uh, broadly within the context of the military. And then at the end of the war, within efforts to try to help the survivors. So the war, when it comes to an end, not just you know, um, VE Day, but VJ Day in August of 45. And Jews, Jewish GIs come back to the United States. They really come back as changed men. Um, and to a certain extent, the women who were involved as changed women as well. Um, they have been taught how to fight. And they return to a United States that has discrimination against Jews, that has prejudice against Jews, um, and they're not ready to take it anymore. What they had grown up knowing um, and sort of accepting, well, this is the way it is, that there are certain industries that you couldn't get a job in, that there are certain neighborhoods that you couldn't live in, there are certain, right, I mean, schools and colleges, universities that all had quotas that restricted Jews. You know, it's like, no, not anymore. Um, we now have fought in a war for the uh, United States, and now we're going to fight to make the United States a more equal society. 
which is something they proceed to do. And so when people talk about the rapid decline of anti-Semitism in the 1950s in the US, it's partly due to the efforts of all of these men um, and women to change America. The second thing that they come back with, of course, is a commitment to uh, helping the survivors and a recognition that the survivors could not go back to their homes. Right? There was no way. That they needed someplace else to go. And although most American Jews did not go into the war as Zionists, they come out of the war convinced um, that the Zionist project is the appropriate project um, and supporters of the creation of a Jewish state. And as a result, these men and women end up, of course, changing the post-war world in very important ways. And as someone who was born after World War II and grew up in that post-war world, I'm very grateful to my father and his buddies and all the other guys who came back and made such a difference. Thank you. I'm wondering, the Jews that came back from their experience fighting, and they came back to the United States uh, no longer willing to tolerate the anti-Semitism and the limitations imposed on them by an anti-Semitic society, do you think that they were successful in what they sought to do as far as opening up opportunities and breaking down barriers because of the horrific things that happened to Jews in World War II and that became known generally to the entire um, population of the United States through the movie reels and all that other stuff. Whereas if it was just a war about, let's say, against the Japanese and the Jews came back and there had been nothing horrible done to the Jews in Europe, um, that if they had come back saying, hey, we fought for this country, just like the blacks did when they came back from war, we fought for this country and we want equal opportunities and rights as Americans, and we don't want there to be any more anti-Semitism, had there not been that horrific treatment of Jews, uh, would they have had the success that they had? Okay, so that's one of these questions of um, a condition contrary to fact, right? Uh, and there's no way as a historian that one can answer that, but I will try to answer some aspects of it. One of the things that does happen in the war is that Jews win a great deal of respect from their fellow soldiers. I gave you some examples of their efforts to do that. Um, I didn't talk about um, the... Christian soldiers, uh, both Protestant or Catholic, who go with their fellow Jews to services, right? Why not? You know, it's something nice to do on a, <clears throat> excuse me, on a Friday night, or sometimes it's on a Thursday night because it didn't work on a Friday, whatever. You know, um, and vice versa. Jews, Jews go to Christian services too. So um, there's a level of intimacy that is produced by being integrated into the military, that's very important. Um, many Jews describe when they first get into the service that Christians think, you know, they got horns, right? They, they touch their, their heads. Um, they, they really have not met Jews. Um, and, you know, talking about 40% of the Jews living in New York, well, it's, it's a big country, right? And there are lots of parts of the country where there were no Jews. So uh, there, there are these positive um, experiences as well. Um, I don't think that it's just a matter of the, um, uh, the genocide that against European Jews that changes um, attitudes. Um, I think there's also the, the positive experiences uh, that Jews and, and Christians have in the service. I, I think that the fact that um, you, you, American propaganda, internal propaganda, 
um, sought to distinguish the United States, right? What does democracy represent it, it, and, and how it is opposed to the values of what Nazism is becomes very important because returning soldiers could say, look, this is what America is claiming to represent. Now let's you know, make sure it really does. So uh, there are a, a wide array of factors that are important. Um, in making for the change. And it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a slow, it's a slow process. And there are, of course, um, always people who are opposed to these kinds of changes. But when Eisenhower is elected president, um, he is a big proponent of the uh, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, because that's what you had in the military. And so he assumes, yeah, uh, and that makes Judaism equal to Protestantism and Catholicism. It's a, it's a, a religion of democracy. Yes. Was there ever a, an attempt to have any segregation of Jews in the, uh, in the uh, military? Uh, obviously there was with respect to black units. No, Jews were not segregated in the military. Um, it's, and that's why their experience is completely different from African Americans. Um, there were Jews who were leaders of African American units, um, including some guys who were very left wing and you know felt like this was an important thing to do, and others who were not particularly left wing but ended up uh, being in charge of, of black units. Uh, but no, Jews were Jews were not segregated. In the military at all. Much of your talk seemed to relate to Jews who enlisted and then served in the European theater. Does your research indicate any difference between, say, uh, volunteers versus enlistees, or uh, volunteers versus draftees, and one theater versus the other? So, yes, okay, so there's a difference. I, look, I only have 45 minutes, so I concentrate on the European theater. Um, although, actually, that's where the, the majority of troops were sent to the European theater, um, not to the Pacific theater. But, uh, so the experience of Jews in the Pacific theater, um, I'm gonna ask, it's a two-part question, I'll answer that part first, was in fact different um, from the European theater because the, they did not feel a particular animosity toward the enemy. I mean, this was, you know, an enemy of the United States and they were fighting um, as Americans and the Jewish peace was less salient. Um, in the Pacific theater, you have Jews feeling far more isolated. I mean, it has to do with the character of the fighting, also the going from island to island. Um, and there aren't that, you know, there are only relatively few um, Jews in any one unit. Uh, and what I found were there were more Jews who um, uh, converted uh, to find fellowship in the Pacific theater than in the European theater. Um, now, if you also add in North Africa and India, right, I mean, there, there are other areas. One of the things that happens in India, for example, is that Jews discover other Jews who don't look at all like them, right? They look Indian. And um, this is something they, they struggle with. Um, I, I saw letters where, where people write back, especially Southern Jews, um, and say, you know, they're still Jews, um, even though you would call them them black, um, and so, and the same with, with North Africa. They're, it's like, wow, they're so different. Uh, so there's that Jewish-Jewish encounter that occurs in uh, India and in North Africa that doesn't happen in Europe. So there are real differences in the theater. Okay, the enlistees versus draftees. Um, uh, a number of the guys I, I um, uh, uh, spoke about were, were drafted um, and, and didn't enlist. The, the guy from the Bronx who uh, played ba basket, uh, baseball, um, he was drafted right out of, he graduated high school in uh, January and you know by February he was in the military um, and didn't think. The guys were a little bit older 
and who enlisted, enlisted in part because they could choose their, um, you, you know, the, the, the branch of the service that they wanted to be in, but there were plenty of 18-year-olds who just get drafted. Um, I didn't particularly find um, that a major difference that couldn't be more correlated with a slight bit more maturity for the, the men who enlisted. Yeah. You said that Judeo-Christianity wasn't really a thing. Where did it come from? So, um, it, it's initially invented in the 30s, and it's invented in, by, by liberal um, Christians who are opposed to uh, notions that the United States is a Christian country, which was a, a right-wing um, idea at the time, and liberal Christians didn't want to um, espouse that, so that they begin to put forth this notion of a, a, um, a Judeo-Christian tradition. The military, what it does is it, it makes it standard operating procedure. You don't have a, um, a major um, uh, service, a funeral service, right, for the dead without having a Protestant, a Catholic, and a, and a a Jew there as as part of it, you know. You they they really. That's why my example with the uh, the life um, uh, boats. Uh, they, they really try to um, institutionalize this, and they do it also with the training of chaplains. They try to put four men in a room, essentially like the four chaplains. That they wanted a Jew together with a liturgical Protestant, an evangelical Protestant, and a Catholic. And the idea was for that month of, of training as a chaplain, they would get to know each other. Um, and so all of these were ways in which the, the chaplaincy was trying to make the notion of Judeo-Christian a, a real thing. Now, it didn't always work. I could give you examples where there are, you know, chaplains who refuse to um, do things for a, another religious group, but, you know, it, it was, it was the, the official um, ideology. Yeah. And then after the war, so many people were in service, right? It just, it spreads. Wasn't the only soldier GI who was executed for cowardice in World War II Jewish? An incident that happened in France? Um, I, I don't know if I would say the only uh, GI who was executed. I, I, I can't answer that question. Okay. Did you interview any women? Yes, I did interview women. Um, mostly and in the nursing corps? Pardon? I assume mostly in the medical? Were they mostly in the medical? So, no, women were, again, in a variety of fields. Some, were, some went into, you know, they went into the wax, the waves, right? They, um, and also some served as nurses. Um, the women's experiences were somewhat different as well as similar. Uh, their motivations for going in um, included the same kinds of sort of political motivations of, of men who enlisted, except that uh, rather than worrying about a draft, because there was no draft for women, um, they had the added desire to get out of the house. Uh, if they were um, unmarried, uh, they, they lived with their parents. Right? That was fairly standard. And so this was a way of, of leaving home and to do something of value. Um, they encountered the same kinds of anti-Semitic assumptions um, in, in basic training that the men encounter. Um, far fewer of them are sent overseas than the men are, um, but the ones who do go over um, are often uh, serving in, um, uh, as, as nurses and uh, medics. And uh, they play a very important, uh, important role there. Uh, so yeah, I, I did interview uh, the women. They also, you know, in, in England, for example, they they um, 
they do things for for the kids um, who've been displaced in England. You know, try to do sort of Jewish holiday kinds of things. And yeah, I mean, there's there are there are Jewish elements that they have the ability to do that the men did not. Hi, forgive me, I can't, I don't know the difference between liturgical and evangelical Protestants. Ah, okay. So liturgical would be, um, I guess Episcopalian would be the, the, uh, the high church type, liturgical. Evangelical are um, Baptist, uh, Church of uh, Christ, um, uh, the, 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 the ones who, that are more um, emotional in their, their services and rather than um, a more formalized uh, uh, type of uh, service. Was the GI Bill in effect after World War II for free education? If so, how did that impact on the Jewish community and how was the percentages of Jews utilizing that opportunity um, different and how was that perceived? So the GI Bill was not just for education, um, it was also low-cost mortgages and it included um, a year's worth of um, subsidy. Uh, the Congress was very nervous about uh, what would happen when all these soldiers were demobilized. The bill was passed in 44, and they're worried that there's just going to be a lot of um, unemployment. So, in essence, there's a, a, a 52 weeks of pay that you can get um, if you don't have employment. Uh, Jews did use the uh, the education component of the bill a lot. They used it to go to college, they used it to get professional training. You could use it for medical school, you could use it for law school, you could you could take it with you. Um, one of the guys I interviewed used it for uh, graduate study at the Hebrew University, right? Um, it, you didn't have to spend the money um, in the United States. Uh, and it was a certain amount of money that paid tuition, but also helped to pay for your living expenses. So it, it made a very big difference for Jews and in sort of vaulting them into uh, the middle class in a way that would not have been possible before. Remember, on this afternoon I, I spoke about free college in New York City. Well, the rest of the country did not have free college. There had been a free college in, uh, in Chicago, but um, that closes down in, during the Depression. And so this was the equivalent of offering free college to um, all these guys. Jews used the mortgage benefit much less than non-Jews did. Um, because they weren't as interested in buying a house um, uh, at the time. Um, but yeah, the, the GI Bill's benefits were very important. So I'm gonna wrap it up with a um, question about tomorrow's program. Can you tell us a little bit what you'll be talking about at lunch in the, concept, in the context of Jewish identity politics? Okay, so um, what I'm going to talk about uh, at lunch really it, it are the politics of, of Jews that, that take shape in the 1970s, um, sort of it's after the experiences of this, what has gone under the rubric of the greatest generation, it's about their kids, the baby boomer kids, um, and the ways in which many of the things that this baby, this, this, World War II generation accomplished get criticized by their students uh, because they engage in a very different kind of politics. So it's going to be about uh, feminism and it's going to be about Israel and it's going to be right about um, uh, Holocaust uh, uh, and the ways in which that becomes a mode of uh, thinking about politics. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you for the terrific presentation. Hopefully we'll see you guys tomorrow. Remember to support CSP as we start our 19th year. Have a good evening.